Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Ethan Delves. I'm joined by Josh Herring, your typical host for the show. We're back to rehash season two. If you remember, I hosted the um, rehash episode for season one, and I'm back to find out what has happened on the Optimistic Curmudgeon since then. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ethan. I'm so glad you could come back and uh, join me for the finale episode of season two. It's great to see you again. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoy doing these episodes. Uh, reminds me of the old times on What's the Res, and I love seeing what you've been up to with the Optimistic Curmudgeon. I know. It, it, I kind of missed that show. It was really fun to uh, be in the classroom, throw the equipment together, do an in-person recording, and then stay up either late that night or early the next morning to try and drop the episode. Uh, but now we're not doing that anymore. So we actually get to uh, record these a little bit in advance and now play with live streaming, all kinds of fun stuff. But uh, I, we certainly learned a lot doing it that way. That's for sure. We've got a lot of upgrades now. I think the live streams have become more frequent. We've got StreamYard now instead of Zoom. Um, and I, I do miss how long the What's the Res episodes went, though, because when we had those episodes going over two hours, you knew you know something good was happening. It was hidden in the weeds for sure, but something really golden was there. Now, do you, by any chance, uh, still keep up with Patrick the Nihilist? Um, occasionally. I did talk to him this semester, yeah. He wants to apply to Oxford University, um, and I think he'd be the perfect candidate for that school, honestly. And he... I've, he was sharing something with me last time. I think it was a, something about determinism. I'll have to go and look, but it was a really interesting take on whatever he was currently working on. Excellent. So, yeah. um, so let's hear about some of the guests that you had this season. Uh, do you have any favorite episodes, some highlights that you want to share, some episodes that you'd like to point out? Sure. Um, well, I guess there's, there's, uh, we had some great guests. I was really excited uh, I'm going to start way back at the beginning, because I think in terms of national, maybe international prestige, my first guest of the season was definitely the top. Uh, I got to interview Dr. Kevin Roberts. At the time, he was with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. But by the time the episode aired, he had moved over to be president of the Heritage Foundation. So that was really exciting. I loved getting to hear from him. Uh, he uh, really was very concerned about the uh, just the debacle that was the uh, Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan and wanted to just let it be known far and wide that President Biden did something that maybe needed to be done, but did it in an absolutely atrocious way. The way that was handled did not bode well for the Biden administration. And um, I think I can I feel pretty confident saying that uh, Dr. Roberts was right. <laughs> Nothing's gotten better for the Biden administration since then. Uh, they've just gone from debacle to debacle. Um, uh, in terms of economics, we had a couple guests this season. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to sit down with Bob Luddy. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, sit down with the founder of Thales Academy and Captive Air. Bob brings together such a unique perspective. He's got tons of experience in the business world, but also is an educational entrepreneur. And uh, he's also incredibly well-read. So I got to chat with him about inflation and why are we seeing at the time the sky-high prices of $389 at the pump, which has only gotten worse since then. I think I saw $450 a gallon, yeah, uh, $460 yeah. a gallon this week. Uh, I got to sit down with Mike Munger of Duke University and talk about his uh, politics, philosophy, and economics program. And I uh, got to pick his brain about public choice economics and what all is going on with that. Uh, we had some great education episodes. Uh, we got to speak with Carissa Mulder. She was the co-author on a book called uh, Race-Based Admissions, looking at some of the problems in higher ed uh, that maybe started with the best of intentions, uh, trying to establish equity in terms of who all gets into college. But in fact, race-based admissions just enshrines a different kind of racism in the process of college admissions and is leading to widespread problems in the academy today. I got to speak with Shane Trotter. He's a teacher down in Texas. He published a new book called Setting the Bar. He was looking at one of the big problems in public education, uh, where particularly the part of the, uh, the, the, the impetus behind public education is making it accessible to everyone. And that's a, no, that's a noble goal. But at the same time, in the last decade, there's been a lot of what's been called what's called mainstreaming special needs children where schools, for all kinds of reasons, they'll put kids who should be in a unique special needs classroom, they'll put those in the traditional classroom. And that means what that ends up doing functionally for teachers is it requires them to lower the content level to the lowest level present in the classroom. 
And Shane argues that instead, if we really want to have better public education, we need really high standards. Uh, but instead, public education has just continued lowering the bar. And that really is a disservice to the most capable students and also a disservice to those students who really should be in their own special track of education. Um, a couple of episodes, I'm kind of, I'm not quite sure how to categorize, but I really enjoyed uh, speaking with the, the guest on those. Uh, Nick Higgins came on for sort of an ethics and philosophy conversation about the nature of laws and sharing about really what is a law versus what's a policy. I, I will freely confess, I wanted him to tell me that I was ethically permitted to disobey COVID policies. Nick disappointed me. Uh, he, in fact, told me that if a law is passed by a duly constituted authority, I am, in fact, morally <laughs> obligated to obey it. So Oops. there we go. It turns out I do have to obey COVID policies. Uh uh, since that episode dropped, uh, the Biden administration has actually been evaluated on whether or not their requirement for a mask to be worn on national transportation like airlines was actually constitutional. When that executive order went out, uh, President Biden rather famously said, I'm pretty sure this is unconstitutional, but I'll leave that for the courts to decide. For a time, that was what everyone was required to follow. Uh, but since then, the Supreme Court has determined that that was not actually what had to be done. And uh, so that law disappeared, which I think shows that uh, by and large, Nick was right. And we are required to follow certain things as long as they are executed by the duly constituted authorities. Uh, had a great, great books conversation with Daniel Garner. We talked about Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Um, uh, I dropped that one just at the beginning of the Russian-Ukraine war. And it's a great way of looking at the underlying principles of what makes for a totalitarian regime and why that hasn't really gone away. Uh, I had a wonderful conversation with Alan Mendenhall. He's a great professor at Troy University. Uh, we talked about Richard Weaver and the idea of the South. Uh, Alan is a, uh, he's a very impressive guest. He's uh, also the editor of a, a Southern literature journal. He's a practicing lawyer and also manages to know everyone in the, the small world of conservative academia. Uh, the episode that I was, I will admit, a little nervous about, because I was kind of wondering what happens if we get flamed all across the internet for this one. Uh, but that didn't happen. Not enough people have listened to it. So if, if people do discover this and flame us, they'll at least run our numbers up. Uh, but I got to interview Nathaniel Blake. He's a uh, postdoctoral fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center in DC. I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, that was right. Uh, he wrote an article uh, entitled OK Groomers that is really all about was looking at the response to the Florida parental rights and education bill. And Dr. Blake argues that, in fact, uh, that the response to that is almost more interesting than the bill, because the bill makes sense on the surface. It says, teachers, you cannot discuss issues of sexual identity with children uh, in grades three through pre-K. And that's eight years old. And oh, under. yeah, I remember this. Yeah. Yep. And uh, uh, Nathaniel's argument was that that, that uh, caused an up, a lot of uproar, really, because uh, there's, there's really a sense in which progressives want to bring students into this identity, because even though the, the narrative is that people are born this way, to quote Lady Gaga, uh, Nathaniel brought up some scientific research that showed there is no such thing as a gay gene, in which case different sexual identities are learned and inhabited. They're not genetic. They're not natural. So attempting, so there is sort of a, there is an impetus to bring students into the LGBTQ space. And so that, in that sense, he thinks the word groomer is an, is the right term to use. I think that's what the arguments make. I, I kind of expected a Twitter fight and we did not get a Twitter fight. See, I, at first I was like this, whatever, whatever this is, I didn't get the title, obviously it, I needed right. that explanation. I was like, this is the least controversial episode out of this list that I've got here. And now I can see it. I can. I was like, no, COVID policies for sure. But no, I got it now. I, I can see how yep. that it, you would be expecting your Twitter to blow up on that one. Well, luckily yeah. you got you avoided that one. And it's amazing who will respond when you email, like anyone. I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned from what's the res. Like, you can literally reach out to anybody who wrote an article i mean i reached out the i think the washington post one time for our a robert spaulding episode for um, nuclear weapons and did you just reach out to kevin roberts over email and yeah not quite that one was a little trickier uh, okay. because and 
I think in part, um, this show is is doing something a little different than what's the res. What's the res? We always had that uh, close, topical, and timely interest because we were tied to a debate resolution being released. For this show, I'm I'm really trying to trade on the expertise of the guests. So okay. I'm looking for folks who have either an institutional connection or a, a degree in the area that they're speaking about, or have published a book. Those those tend to be my three criteria. Okay. Um, for Dr. Roberts, uh, he was a big enough figure that I couldn't directly get to him, but I did discover that the Hillsdale College Network is wonderful. Uh, nice. uh, turns out I had a friend uh, named Tara who at the time worked for the Texas uh, Public Policy uh, Center. Uh, she had made a comment on one of the uh, posts about a previous episode, and I thought, oh, I wonder if she can help me get to Dr. Roberts. Turns out she knew someone who knew someone. She helped us make that connection. And then I got an email back from Dr. Roberts, uh, executive assistant, and he helped us kind of finalize the details. Uh, so you've nice. probably heard the saying that uh, either three degrees of separation or six yeah. degrees of separation. Uh, people come up with different numbers, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, that people who know people who are willing to make those connections are wonderful for helping, uh, helping the world go round. That's for sure. That is really awesome. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but go Hillsdale. Like that's definitely, that's a win for you guys right there. Um, yep. So it sounds like it was a great season. Talk, tell me about some of the numbers. So I know you're, you're still with Podbean. You've migrated to YouTube a little bit. The social media mm -hmm. presence is getting a little bit more diverse. Tell me what's going on there. Sure. Uh, and, and really uh, this as a podcast is uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a little odd in that uh, it's hard to precisely define the audience. I think defining the audience is key to long-term big numerical growth. Uh, so we've stayed with Podbean. Um, we, and so Podbean is the audio-only side of the podcast. If you subscribe via Apple Podcast or through Spotify, you're really listening to the file that is hosted on Podbean. Uh, we have between 25 and 40 plays across all episodes. Uh, meaning that there's 25 to 40 people who are uh, actively listening to just those. I suspect those are a lot of commute listeners. Um, those tend to come within the first two weeks of an episode being dropped, but they also do build over time. Um, I have a bigger audience on YouTube. My my numbers go up. This still uh, surprises me because I, I think of podcasting as an audio format, uh, but I have a lot of friends who will tell me they really like just putting the YouTube video on in the background while they're doing chores or something. And then if there's a moment when they hear the emotional register tick in a certain direction, they want to pause the video and actually see what our faces look like. Yeah. I, I don't think this format lends itself to being very exciting video footage. I mean, obviously there's the two of us talking, but that's not really that exciting. Uh, but occasionally perhaps people want to see if we're smiling or if we're like raising our fist or if we're, we're angry or whatever. Um, so that one, that one's double the size of uh, what I've got on Podbean. Uh, social media platforms are growing. Uh, I've got we've got 140 followers on Twitter. Uh, I've got 290 followers on LinkedIn and 227 followers on Facebook. Uh, those three tend to be pretty different groups. Uh, Facebook is mostly people from my personal circles. Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn are unique accounts that are not really tied to my personal account. And they those are folks who are interested in the show or the issues that we're talking about. Uh, LinkedIn, I've, I've made a lot of efforts to kind of track with classical education leaders because we have a lot of shows that kind of focus on school choice and big education questions. Um, we're up to 36 subscribers on YouTube. Um, next year, we are going to do a little bit more advertising. And uh, I remembered last week that uh, once upon a time, you found that cool program where Podbean will feature a new podcast and got What's the Res on their like homepage banner for five days. Right, right. Huge jump in our numbers after that. Uh, so I went ahead and I was like, I checked. That still exists. So we're the optimistic curmudgeon now in the pipeline. Sometime in the next six months, I expect we'll see a a bigger push in that direction. So nice. we'll we'll see. But I'm I'm encouraged. I think it's it's building. It's slow, but it's steady. Uh, and and I suspect, like with most most things, uh, we'll eventually hit that tipping point, and our numbers will kind of build a lot faster. Right. Compound interest. So what, what do you hope your listeners will get from you? Like if you, if you had all of your audience in front of you right now, what are you hoping that your audience is going to gain from your podcast at the end of the day? That's a great question. I really like that one. Um, I think the first thing I'm looking for is I, I want listeners to know that 
there are good intellectual ideas out there uh, and, and that are worth talking about. Um, the sense I have is that the podcast and general mainstream media space is so overwhelmingly dominated by progressive narratives that it's pretty easy to have the conviction that there are no conservatives out there in the world. Or if there are conservatives, they're kind of like Fox News talking heads who have about six things to say that they shout to the rooftops and repeat infinitely, when instead there actually are a lot of people doing really important work in a lot of different areas. So I hope that this is a source of kind of intellectual food for, for the audience. So they walk away thinking, oh, wow, that was an interesting guest. I want to follow his work. That's an interesting institution. That's an interesting book. And I want to know more. Um, probably the second thing I'm really hoping uh, is that, uh, and it's closely connected, I suspect, to the first, uh, is that folks who are kind of hear that and think, oh, that was interesting. They then want to push that out to a friend or family member. That They're, they're so intrigued that they want to share that. Um, but really, I and I guess the third thing I'd mention there is that uh, the episodes are sort of oriented in a loose group, maybe a loose constellation, uh, where we've got episodes focusing on economics, business, uh, education, leadership, virtue, great books, and politics. Uh, seven different areas that are all sort of related. They're all kind of focused in different ways. But I think if you put those areas together, you get sort of a working picture of what does it mean to be an intelligent, liberally educated human being in the 21st century. Uh, it's, we, we don't really live in a world where uh, you can really just closet yourself away and read literature all day, every day, much as that might be my heart's desire some days. Uh, we do live in a world where we need to be thinking about what is the economic reality? What is the political reality? What are the different ideas that are influencing those people and those folks who are working in that? What's happening with education? What does it mean to be a good human being in the business world? What What's, what's required for good leadership? What's the role of virtue today? All, all of these, I think, are perennial questions that we need to consider. And it's really easy for to either just ignore them or to think that the only intelligent people thinking about those are also lefty progressive folks. Right. And so I, my hope is that this show is really a become sort of a center where the folks who are speaking in that direction are all kind of gathered together and it becomes kind of a place you can tune in to know, ah, ah that's going to be a good conversation. There's only one up this month, but it's a good conversation. I'm going to check that right. one out. Okay, I like that. Yeah, so it's almost as if your your show is the platform or almost the funnel that people can use to see what's in the world of conservative academia, which I think is great because um, you know, so I go to UNC now, so I encounter lots of the progressive um, literature and ideas. And if I wanted to hear a conservative voice on, let's say, maybe an economic or political topic, my first question is, where do I go? And how do I know, like, you know, is this typically what a conservative would say, or is this some radical person who's going to have a more intense sort of view? And it's right. it's not a matter of like um, not knowing that there's a conservative side to it, but just which where does that side exist and where like where does that fall in the conservative tradition? So I think that's really great that you can gather people using this show and then use the or lean on the expertise of different guests to sort of give them an idea of where to look and lead them down different paths that they can investigate for themselves. That's I think, awesome. in, uh, especially in a, uh, I mean, especially in a post-Trump America, uh, there is a, I keep running into folks who want to conflate the person and policies of Donald Trump with conservatism. And they sort of want to boil it down to as if like, well, if you're not a conservative, you have to be over here supporting the furthest left extremes of the, of the Biden administration to take kind of a polar, polarized example and if you don't like the Biden administration, you must be over here wearing a MAGA hat. Right. I think it's a vast, vast oversimplification. I think there are plenty of folks, uh, uh, lots of the ones I just mentioned, who all of them would have a complex relationship with the person and ideas of Donald Trump with the uh, notion of the Republican Party. I don't think the Republican Party is inherently that conservative. It looks like they're trying to be a little conserve something a little bit more than the Democratic Party. But if you ask of the Republican Party itself, what is the thing that you are trying to conserve and pass from one generation to another? You're going to get a lot of different answers. And I think it matters that we be able to see that conservatism is not monolithic. 
it itself is its own spectrum. It's got a lot of people claiming the term for various reasons. Um, but I think the in the 1950s, really, Russell Kirk made a splash in the academic world by being the first person uh, in roughly a generation to be simultaneously a very intelligent, academically inclined person and honestly claim the conservative label. And it sort of made this splash like, like, oh, there is an intellectual conservatism. That is a thing that exists. Uh, his book, The Conservative Mind, really created that splash in the 1950s. That's kind of fallen away in, in later decades, except in small pockets that tend to form pretty insular bubbles. I would call Hillsdale College one of those bubbles. There, there tends to be a lot of internal conversations. If you're inside the bubble, it's very easy to feel like everyone is conservative. But if you're in the wider world, which my career has taken me more towards the wider world than into that bubble, I think your college choice, instead yep, of I was about doing to say. what I wanted you to do and go to Hillsdale, you, you did what you probably ought to have done and went to Chapel Hill instead. You're seeing that wider world where it's like, wait a minute, it seems like a lot more people are shouting, burn it all down and build something new from the ashes instead of there is value here that we need to cherish and conserve from generation to generation. Oh, but yeah. I, yeah. yeah. So I was, yeah, the, the college decision was on my mind when you were saying that, because I suppose if I had, this is the reality. I went to Thales and then I was like, okay, this isn't the most bubbles that bubbles can get, but I have to see what else is out there, you know? And, um, and I, I need, I need to test whether or not I can hold my ground or investigate what I want to hold on to and what I want to add to. And that's what UNC did. And it, vice versa. If I went to a school in, um, earlier education that was more like UNC and then went to somewhere like Hillsdale, I'm sure, or at least I hope that I would be on the same mission. Um, but you'd be surprised at how, like, in, in most arguments or most conversations that I get into that are politically or economically oriented, um, I'll kind of take on that attitude. It's sort of like a skeptical attitude, not so much of like mm -hmm. a, an, an angry side or anything like that. And what people, it'll, that recognition that some type of value exists in the status quo, or in, I guess the previous status quo, if something has already been changed, sort of rubs off on people a little bit. And if you get into that mindset of like, there's good intentions here, but something's going wrong, some people will actually kind of float to your side and, and like mm -hmm. dim down a little bit and not be so heated. It's, it's like a, it's, I wouldn't even say it's a rare occurrence. It definitely does happen sometimes. But um, UNC has definitely changed my perspective on some things. Um, I, although I will admit that my efforts have been very philosophically focused and not so much economically and politically focused so that I'm very like, I was, I guess, unable to speak on those things right now. And I've been very concerned with learning how to write better essays and think better. So um, that's where my pursuits have been right now. But it's, uh, I think that um, kind of just to wrap it back to your purpose for the show as a whole is giving people that other element of that is a sort of, quieter in these in this day and age to interact with when one side sort of gets too large. You need both. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's that's part of one of the reasons I really like bringing on. Uh, I'm looking for a certain kind of guest. I'm, I'm not really looking for a shock jock sort of guest who will say really outlandish things. Um, instead, I'm looking for a guest who has something to communicate and believes certain things are true but who has the credentials that will be able to make a rational case for that position such that, and I'm, I'm, I do have a, there's sort of an evangelical aspect to the show as well, where uh, I do kind of hope that maybe somewhere out there, there are some folks of a left-leaning political persuasion who might listen in to um, maybe the episode with Carissa Mulder and hear a very well-reasoned DC-based attorney make the case for like, actually, here's why, prioritizing college admissions through race is a bad idea. And we don't necessarily have to be unified on the most important questions to ask the question, is the way we currently are doing this practice in society ultimately a good thing? Right. And I think those clear-headed, rational voices are really important for us to be able to ask those questions and consider what's possible in the way we arrange society. Imagine progressives and conservatives having a conversation like that. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just might turn out to be what... Uh, yeah, it'll uh, happen here first. Uh, well, you, You'll see it here first. I mean, in, in, in all honesty, it's been happening uh, for many years. I mean, it, on the Supreme Court, there was a, uh, the famous friendship uh, between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and um, 
I'll say, was it Alito? It was one of the more famously conservative uh, justices, uh, not Alito. Somebody who's listened to the show and knows this, please write in and correct me. But there's this famous friendship um, between the two that really uh, signified they have opposite views on the on the Constitution, but they really can, in a lot of cases, come to see. In most cases, we're not arguing about foundational principles. We're arguing about practical application. And in that sense, we ought to be able to have a conversation. But I do think it matters at the same time that we recognize that all people in those conversations, it's legitimate for them to hold on to their convictions. If I'm having a discussion with a progressive, uh, we need to both be ready to kind of make our cases while recognizing we're standing from different positions and we have different ultimate values in play. And we should be able to appreciate each other's uh, positions without asking each other to necessarily surrender, while also recognizing that both parties may be making truth claims that do mean we, we are making opposite claims about reality and one is right and one is wrong in that circumstance. So it's, it's not as simple as we all ought to just get along. Uh, I don't want to flatten the distinctions mm -hmm. between different political views in that way. But I do think it matters that we be able to hear strong voices that are articulating a side that currently is not well represented in the marketplace of ideas. Let's talk about how this message is getting out, not only in terms of um, sort of the social media presence, but what are we doing on StreamYard here? What, what happened yep. to Zoom? Well, I, 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 I don't really know what happened to Zoom, except that I went to edit uh, my next episode and... I had five episodes recorded ahead of time and Zoom converted them from MP3 and MP4 files uh, to something called a .conf file, which was a text file that listed the name of the MP3 and MP4 files. So I can see in the text file what is supposed to be there, but they were gone. Uh, so oh. I was just kind of, I was a bit bummed because I was very excited about uh I had an episode with Dr. Mike Young about one of my favorite philosophers, Hans Gadamer. That was gone. I had an episode with Jenna Robinson about adjunct professors in the academy. That was was gone. Oh. An episode with a guy named Matt Slaybach, who's a professor at Denison University, about the idea of progress and whether or not progress is really good. That episode is gone. Uh, I had an episode with George Leaf at the uh, James Martin Center about uh, his new novel, The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. That one's also gone. So I'm, I'm, I'm rescheduling, I'm re-recording. You'll see a lot of those episodes in season three, uh, but it definitely kind of curtailed. It meant I quickly emailed, uh, I did the last episode with, the episode with Nathaniel Blake was a re-recording, uh, which turned out, I think, better than the original. Okay, good. Episode. That's always nice when that happens. Yeah, but it just, I, I was pretty frustrated with Zoom. And uh, right about that time, I was listening to the Aaron Wren show. And if in some reason, because when I tag him on Twitter, if he happens to listen to the show, thank you, Aaron, for uh, uh, sharing about uh, your podcasting methods. Because I really enjoyed the Aaron Wren show. He's got great cultural analysis. Uh, but he opened his show talking about streaming this over StreamYard. And I was very intrigued because the files live in the cloud and then you can pull them down for editing. But uh, they, they do live in the cloud. And uh, then you can live stream them to different locations. So I thought, oh, that'd be an interesting way to build the audience, build engagements, that kind of thing. Uh, and I have some guests who uh, would be comfortable with live streaming. So that would be really cool if their audience could also join in to some degree for the episode. And I gave it a try. Uh, the episode with Nathaniel Blake was the first one. I used StreamYard's free, uh, free method. Uh, I'm now past my free trial and decided it went well enough that we're actually going with a paid method for, for this one. Uh, so it's a, I think it's been a good change, but uh, Zoom, Zoom is done for the show. I'm going to use StreamYard until uh, either I find something better or it doesn't work. See, I was happy to see that we're using StreamYard because I was today years old when I found out that Gary Vee also uses StreamYard. And oh, he is a, okay. yeah, love Gary Vee, huge inspiration. So if he if he's on the StreamYard bandwagon, I'm glad to hop on, hop on as well. All right, so I'll be sure to also tag Gary V, and I'll just oh yeah, and just, <laughs> he, yeah well he's on the homepage, so it was really hard to miss. <laughs> so besides re-recordings, what's going to make it into season three? Yeah, I I cannot tell you how excited I am about some of the uh, season three guests. Uh, so um, uh, first one I'll mention is a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. I uh, I think I gave you her book. Oh yeah, I, I I sped through that book in like two days. Oh. It was so good. Wasn't it great? Yeah. Um, 
that was the uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria was a uh, uh, she her first book that I encountered at least is uh, her story of beginning as a she was not beginning but at the beginning of the story she's a lesbian women's studies professor at uh, a university in New York and uh, she becomes a Christian. Uh, in part because a local pastor asked her to support her views on the Bible and then began a conversation. And they spent two hours, or I'm sorry, they spent two years having dinners together at that pastor's uh, home with his family. And she eventually became a Christian, and she describes that as really a train wreck. Uh, she's gone on to write two other books and is really becoming a, a voice in uh, uh, Christian theological circles uh, trying to help churches navigate a lot of questions about homosexuality, transgender, and from a position of uh, strong, educated Christian orthodoxy, but also from somebody who kind of spent several years inside that world, inside that community, and has an immense compassion and uh, calling towards hospitality. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, that, that's going to be great. Uh, we've got one that's a possibility. This one's not confirmed yet, uh, but uh, this was a, a person I reached out to over Twitter, and she said yes, if the timing works out. Uh, her name is Kathleen Hayes. She's working on a PhD at, the, uh, at a university in London. Uh, she wrote a really interesting article about uh, anti-Semitism and the left. It's published in a journal called Fathom. Uh, but in her essay, she explains that she was herself a member of the Communist Party, from 1989 to about 2004, <laughs> which I think is an absolutely fascinate, uh, fascinating time to be a member of the Communist Party. Uh, she was part of just radical politics, looking to embrace the revolution and bring all this change. But part of her journey out of that was discovering that in the midst of this destroy everything and build a new world was buried a movement towards anti-Semitism and really racial prejudice against people of Jewish descent. And so uh, I think uh, part of what I'm hoping to discuss with her is kind of her journey compared to Whitaker Chambers' story in the, uh, the essay he wrote called A Letter to My Children, where he talks about this awakening of realizing that he'd been in this world of communist extremism, that he just didn't see all the horrible things that he was a part of, but suddenly one day he heard the screams, he saw the horrors, and it changed everything. Um, let's see, I'm, uh, I've got a, an author named, uh, I think I have his book in my bag still. Do I? Yes, I do. We'll do a, a visual plug. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, interviewing this guy, Jeremy Adams. Uh, he wrote a book called Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. Uh, we're going to have a discussion about uh, typical education programs and public schools and curriculum. Uh, Jeremy is an award-winning uh, uh, teacher out in, in public schools in California, but has a really strong grasp on classical liberalism and uh, why traditional public education needs really strong curricular expectations uh, for the good of their students. So I think that will be a fascinating conversation. Uh, and um, one more I, I know about that's coming up, I, I hope. It might be this season or it might be season four. I'm really excited to interview my friend Winston Brady. Uh, he's our Dean of Academics for Thales Academy and also the Director of Thales Press. Uh, he just received confirmation that uh, a poem that he's been working on for many, many years, at least a decade, uh, is, wow. is in line to be published. Uh, so he wrote an edition of an updated edition of The Inferno. And uh, where he takes kind of modern figures, kind of Dante's classic, takes some old figures, takes some contemporaries, put them in different levels of hell to illustrate an oh, idea. That's Winston did that with uh, updated folks. And uh, just as a teaser for anyone who's intrigued, Virgil is replaced by Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Winston loves Hemingway. And uh, uh, yeah, so if that's, that's published, cool. once that's published and out and, and set, we'll be, uh, I'll have him on the show. Uh, I've also got a possible lead on a, a real estate mogul up in Virginia and a nutritionist with a lot of opinions about the way we've set up big food in America with uh, kind of wrong incentives that might be causing problems. Uh, there's, there's a lot of exciting stuff uh, going on. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, now, before we kind of go on, um, Ethan, I was hoping, uh, I know you mentioned a lot of stuff about the, uh, the Hertog Foundation and some of the stuff you're doing. Um, could you tell us a bit about Hertog and what what's what they are and what's what's happening with that? I know it's kind of a to break quickly from the show, but sure, I, yeah. I want to make sure we work that into today's conversation. 
Yeah. So the the Hertog Foundation is based out of DC. Um, they remind me a lot of the Coolidge Foundation that we've worked with mm. a lot in the past with speech and debate. Um, and they have a large faculty that is made up of um, people who work at with think tanks, professors at colleges, even senators as well. So lots of um, high-ranking individuals in academia, and they teach summer courses for the students. So it's it's kind of interesting. Everyone seems to have gotten there in the same way, where you'll be students across the United States will be meeting with their professors in office hours, and then a professor will just say, "Hey, you should do this," or "Hey, let me nominate you for this. Let me recommend you for this." That's what happened to me with Professor Worthen at UNC. Um, I talked to one of the other members of my cohort, and she has a similar story. She actually goes to Clemson and is in the same program that David DiCrecio is in, the Lyceum program for political science, which is pretty cool. So it's a small world. Um, and there's two sort of branches of the Hertog Foundation that you can pursue over the summer. One is the political studies program, which takes place for over the course of about two or three weeks, I think, in Washington, D.C., where you get housed at university, and you essentially study with the Hertog Foundation under, under their professors and their faculty for about two or three weeks. Um, they house you and take care of you. They give you, I think, a $3,000 stipend in cash so you can do whatever you want with it. So if you want to just go and spend it in D.C., you spend it in D.C. Or if you want to hold on to it, hold on to it. Um, and that typically is for, um, I think, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, so upperclassmen mainly. Um, and I was nominated for the political studies program. Didn't make it in this time. So I made it into the summer courses program. And I was assigned to the Understanding Social Justice um, summer Ooh. course taught by Daniel DeSalvo. I am extremely excited to um, do all the readings for the course, have the seminars. We meet one week or once a week over Zoom, Wednesdays, 6 to 8 p.m., and have lots of readings to do throughout the week. So I'm working on Distributive Justice by John Rawls right now is the first one. Robert Nozick is another author that mm -hmm. we're going to be reading. And I've read some of his work at UNC while um, taking my philosophy courses as well. So he's really interesting. And uh, it's a two-hour discussion, and we have small discussion papers that we turn in the night before, and we are all assigned a particular question that we work on. So I think my week is the last week, and I'm discussing American identity after having finished the readings for that section. And I think it's going to be a good time. So the professor seems really open to connecting his students to opportunities that they would be interested in and getting them to the right places. And the group that I've met so far, we just did a little icebreaker over this thing what was this? this? It was called Twine online is a oh. sort of like an icebreaker software. Like you just meet with someone random every 30 or every two minutes type of thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, the readings are great. The people seem really awesome. It's, it's, they're similar to a lot of the Coolidge people have a lot of similar interests that I do. Um, lots of sort of philosophy esque majors, PPE sort of thing. And yeah, I think it's going to be a good time. I'm really interested in the readings and um, I think some good conversations are going to happen. Oh, fantastic. I'm, uh, there's a it's a small world of really interesting think tanks that have a have a lot of opportunities. So I'm glad to hear that you've had been able to take advantage of of those. That's that's great. Yeah, and it's 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 great because it's all online for the summer courses for now. So mm -hmm. that gave me a lot of flexibility, knowing that I, I'll be going to Denver in, in July and I'll still be able to to call in and yep. do the coursework with the political studies program. That one I do have an application, so, so I can. It's since I'm a member of the summer courses program, I can automatically have the opportunity to apply for the political studies program next summer. Um, since that one's in DC, that would interfere with things like internships, study abroad, mm -hmm. things of that nature. So that one's a little harder to, to plan for if it's something that you'd want to do. But um, the summer courses are great. They're versatile. You can log in over Zoom, do the readings, participate, and, um, and keep up with the class from anywhere. So I'm really excited for that. Oh, fantastic. So let's talk about you personally for a moment now that we've covered my stuff. What are you excited about in the coming year? Oh, my goodness. There, there's there's a lot. Um, I think one thing I'm excited about, the first thing I'll, I'll mention is a, a shift in job title. Um, I've been spending this current year as an assistant administrator. Um, I've learned a lot about school administration and school leadership. Um, and uh, and at least a decent amount about uh, my own gift set. Um, I think I, I have the capability to be in an operations role, which is what I'm currently in. Uh, but I'm very excited about next year to be uh, less on the operations side and more on the academic side. I'll be dean of classical education. And uh, as dean of classical education, my job is going to focus a lot more on teacher coaching and curriculum formation. Uh, so I'm tasked with writing a couple of textbooks next year. 
Uh, I'll be working very closely with uh, the Thales Press project, uh, which brings me to my second thing. Uh, as a slight change for this podcast, uh, we have, uh, as part of the, th this show is not really aimed directly at the parents of Thales Academy students. It is a project of Thales Academy in the sense that it's under the very broad umbrella. Um, but uh, we are officially going to be all of the intro and outro logos next year or labels next year will uh, mention that we are a project of Thales Press with information about how people can find and follow uh, new developments with Thales Press. Uh, Thales Press is the uh, brainchild of uh, Mr. Winston Brady, and he, uh, he has a vision for an in-house uh, curriculum production company that is working to radically serve the needs of Thales Academy. And in doing that, we can also create resources that are usable for the huge world of uh, the classical renewal movement. So we're going to try to produce a lot of materials and resources that are usable for our needs, but we think also work for a lot of other needs as well. And this podcast will be part of that family. Uh, I'm also really excited to share that uh, next year uh, we will have probably an uptick in quality of the show in terms of video editing, which I am terrible at. Uh, if any of you are uh, watching now on YouTube, uh, you may notice that there has been very little editing done to, to this file. Uh, there was probably a soundtrack added to the beginning and the end, and that was about it. Uh, next year we'll have Madison Kay as our audio engineer and video editor. Madison is a student at Thales Academy Apex. Uh, she's been part of our Titan Talk uh, video production club. They do a weekly news show that's shared. Uh, they have a junior high and high school edition that's shared every every Friday. And uh, Madison came uh, asking if there was more she could do. And I was like, whoa, hey, let's let's see if we can uh, make this work. So she's going to be the one who makes our sound, our sound come out better and our videos uh, come out cleaner. Um, there, there's a lot of other stuff, but I'll uh, just lastly share that uh, next year I will be uh, working furiously to get the dissertation finished. Uh, this summer I am doing a class also on, on justice, uh, nice. not particularly social justice, but I'm sure that'll be included as part of this interdisciplinary studies course on justice. And that's the last class I have before I will be in dissertation stage. So Lord willing, uh, I will defend and uh, graduate in May of 2023 and finally be done with uh, formal education stuff. But I think the piece that I'm most excited, even at least as much as the dissertation, uh, is getting to uh, work on these two textbook projects next year. It's about 10 years ago, I started teaching for Thales Academy, and I was very frustrated at the lack of resources that we had then. I came to my boss and suggested, hey, uh, you know, what would be really great is if you would pay me to actually write some better history textbooks. And that was 10 years ago. And uh, no one's really been really excited about paying me to just sit down and write textbooks. But in the coming year, I do have listed as part of my job description uh, producing two history textbooks. I'll be working on a 10th grade textbook that focuses on Rome all the way up through medieval Europe. And then an 11th grade textbook that picks up with the Renaissance and follows European history all the way up to the present. So, uh, Ethan, I don't know if you remember seventh grade, but uh, you were in my last class that I taught seventh yep. grade history. Gombrich textbook. Yeah. Yep. No, yep. I remember that one. We're not going to use Gombrich anymore. He's um, he's perhaps uh, he's very good on history, but he is definitely a mid 20th century Austrian with some rather racist views of um, anyone who is not also Austrian. <laughs> and oh, okay. We're, we're gonna try to avoid that in, in these, but um, these textbooks are basically gonna be following the uh, the sequence that we followed in your seventh grade history course, but uh, with a, a hopefully deeper and uh, more primary source documents. Uh, I have so many questions about how you even, do you just have like Martin Luther's theses right here, and then how do you cite that? Like, if you're if you're putting this in the textbook for people to read as a primary source, and then what you what you say as a as a as it was a secondary source, like once you have the the title of doctor just goes, and then people can cite you, and is that how that works? Let's take that in order. On the okay. uh, so uh, we get to the Reformation chapter in this textbook. Uh, so I'm going to be my format is going to be to do a five to 10 page essay that is intending to kind of set up the primary sources that are gathered after that. So in that essay might be a couple pages telling the, the story of Martin Luther, then maybe a couple pages looking at broader social, political, economic developments that are sort of setting up the Reformation. And then maybe two or three pages looking at the significance of the Reformation and the diversity within it in terms of 
because the Reformation itself is pretty complex. It's not singular. There are a lot of different Reformations happening throughout Europe. Um, so that should, my hope is that, that that collectively five to 10 pages will prepare students to then encounter those primary sources. So okay. what you might then see after that is a one page edition of however many of the 95 theses we excerpt out. Uh, that's okay. in the public domain. So anybody can do whatever they want with public domain resources. So we'll produce a Thales Press edition of the, of the 95 theses. We might also pair that with uh, a papal denunciation of Martin Luther. And maybe at least one of my favorite sources of that time period is uh, Johann Tetzel's sermon about how you can you can get grandma out of hell if you pay him today for this indulgence. And uh, I mean, it's it's the smooth, slick used car salesman speech 500 years before there were used cars or 400 years before there were used cars. And then at the end of after that, now those those documents will have questions in them to kind of direct students to what they should notice. And then at the end of it, they'll have uh, there will be sort of uh, particular assignments that teachers can decide to either assign those or ignore them or use those as models for slightly different assignments they may want to run. Okay. Uh, so the goal of this is that because it's it's the kind of thing that someone who has taught the taught that class for five years doesn't really need. They they know all of that. They have all that figured out. My goal is to have something that a brand new teacher who has a history degree and has studied the time period but has never taught it before has something they can tell students, okay, class, Monday night, you need to read pages one through four. On Tuesday in class, we're going to look at primary source one. And then Wednesday in class, you're going to do assignment one that's based on primary source one that's keyed to the first four pages of the reading. Oh. And then there on Thursday, go. we're going to come in and we're going to, or on Friday, we're going to come in and we're going to do a quiz over those first four pages in the primary source. Something like that as kind of a standard way that it, it gives a teacher a lot of pieces that they can use. It's Otherwise, very, it's very canvassable. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Very that canvassable, is... very built according to the Thales uh, structure and nine weeks, nine weeks on for a quarter kind of approach and designed with our systems in mind but also adaptable to, I think, a lot of other schools that are looking for high quality resources at an affordable price, which I think we can deliver. That is awesome. And it's, I don't know, it's, I, I've had the privilege of watching your progression through academia for, not for the whole time, obviously, but for since seventh grade, I guess. And I, of course, I didn't really understand what that even looked like in seventh grade. I was, you were just sort of my history teacher and then the debate coach and doing all of these things in the background, you know, master's, PhD, all, all those sorts of things. Um, but look at how far you've come. Two podcasts, you're writing textbooks for um, Thales now, a dream maybe seven to 10 years ago, but now you're going to have a 10th grade and 11th grade textbook. Those are going to be published by Thales Press. People are going to be making assignments out of those. And you have this optimistic curmudgeon, curmudgeon podcast that pairs with Thales Press that can funnel people into the tradition that you sort of defend and perpetuate. Mm -hmm. So you're really making a you're really making an impact upon the community that's going to continue to be even more widespread as it, as time goes on. So that's really awesome. And you have to tell me when you're working on a philosophy textbook because the the ebook. I mean, that's wonderful, but imagine a physical philosophy textbook with the same no. thing, the same assignments. Well, not the same assignments, similar assignments, you know, uh, 10 to 15 page readings and all, and all of that stuff. That would be remarkable. That's probably a couple of years out because we're, we're looking at uh, eventually the goal is to do, have the same approach across, uh, not just not, not look exactly like the history book, but a same approach in terms of producing our own curriculum across all the avenues that we work, we teach in. Um, but uh, there's a lot of places we don't have that yet. We sort of have, a, we have something in place for philosophy right now. The reader you mentioned, it's unwieldy. Apple no longer supports iBooks as a product. And our reader is about 1,200 pages and no one reads the whole thing. Nope. Nobody wants to read a 1,200 page philosophy tome, honestly. Um, but I think most teachers end up excerpting the same passages. Uh, so I think eventually what we're looking at is a philosophy reader that clearly identifies uh, we've already got standards for those courses. So but then lining up five to 10 page readings that really tie to each of those standards would eventually be the goal to produce that kind of a book. That's so awesome. it's it's coming, but it's uh, that's a couple of years down the road, but it's 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 coming. I can't wait to see it. And also, where's um, my Hertog readers in here somewhere? We have, um, so like, 
I'm thinking textbooks, but if you wanted students to be able to take notes in it, Hertog has like this sort of thing. It's kind of the in-between that you can annotate that would replace it. They have can even book back to that real quick and tell me if that's an Amazon create space or do they like print There's, that? I mean, they may have unbranded that part. There's nothing okay. on the back. Okay. It just says Hertog Foundation course reader. Look, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's no Amazon it, anything on there, but part of what we're, we're going for with, uh, with Thales press is free digital download for all products oh, yeah. that we produce. Um, but then also having a pretty, it's, it's relatively seamless. I say that it's still hypothetical right now. We're hoping to be able to make it at the click of a button. Parents can go onto the website. They can order a paper copy that is produced at cost. Thales Press is not making any profit on that. It does cost about $4 for Amazon Create Space to produce a textbook. Okay. But that's a, we're talking about a textbook that would be sold in a standard traditional method for about 50 to 100 bucks if yeah. we're talking something really big. So you're going to need a website like and I'm telling you, this is this is just going to be my predict the future moment. Your website, you are going to need a site. It's going to have to be joshherring.org or joshherring.com. I'm I'm just calling it right now. And in, in four years, you can tell me whatever you want. To, but in four years, you will see Max, you're going to need a website. It's going to have a drop down menu. And it's going to have your reading list there so that all of your listeners for the optimistic curmudgeon can know what books got you to the point where you are now, what books are sort of at the backdrop of all of the conversations that you're having on the podcast to sort of supplement the funnel that you've created. And it's going to have your articles and textbooks and all these, your little portfolio, kind of like Jared Rhodes has with the Coolidge Foundation. Say, he has Jared Rhodes. There's, there's yeah. a lot of folks that do that. I've, I've tried at various points, but so far it's not been worth keeping up with, but I, I appreciate the prediction. That's that. Yeah, that's we'll great. see. I will see. I'm, I'm going to call it right now. I think in three to four years, you're going to have your website and I will be on that reading list for sure, because people want to know like what you, you have like the thinkers and ideas that are sort of in the background of all all the discussions that you're having but having all of the books right there would be even better oh man well future projects Lots of good for things now, coming for now wrapping up season two of the optimistic curmudgeon and enjoying summer break is uh is a great goal i i don't know that i'm looking for that yet but maybe in a few years we maybe in a few years that kind of a website would be a good idea Lots of good things coming. And thank you for um, to everyone for listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode was Josh Herring, and my name is Ethan Delves. Thanks for having me as the host. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at optimisticc3, on Instagram at optimisticcurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, optimisticcurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good. Love the true and pursue the beautiful.